Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman, and throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Dante Ye, one of your co-hosts for this series. In this episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look into the current article, Cost-Effectiveness of Universal Screening for Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury, a Markov Analysis. I'm honored to be joined today by the senior author, Dr. Sharvan Tagave, MD, from Tulane University. Dr. Tagave, thank you for joining me today. Before we begin, do you have any potential conflicts of interest to disclose? I do have some funding from the CDC, but none of which is uh, relative to uh, or related to this research specifically. Great. Thank you for the disclosure. Uh, can you give us a brief summary of your study design and, dis- and describe to us your main findings? Sure. So um, ECBI is really interesting in that uh, over, you know, really three decades of time, the, the pendulum has continued to swing and things have changed and been driven by research. So one thing that uh, if you look at literature related to this that seems to be changing now is that a lot of places are adopting universal screening where basically pretty much every trauma patient is getting a CTA some exceptions, obviously, and uh, looking for a blunt cerebrovascular injury. And a lot of studies have shown that using some traditional screening criteria, you're, you're going to miss anywhere from 10 to 20% of uh, blunt cerebrovascular injuries. So as more and more reports of universal screening have come out, uh, we wanted to look at how a universal screening strategy might affect cost effectiveness in terms of treating and screening for BCBI. So we use a Markov decision model, and a Markov decision model is basically a mathematical model that uses probabilities to simulate future transitions from one disease state to another. In this particular case, different disease states could be a missed BCVI or a diagnosed BCVI. And then uh, it kind of models based on probabilities to different transitions. Relevant to this studies, those transitions could be a stroke, it could be nothing, you know, regular uh, recovery from blunt trauma or death from stroke. And uh, in a cost analysis, a Markov decision model can compute the relative cost of each pathway that you go along, as well as the quality of life that's accumulated within each pathway. It then uses a kind of sophisticated mathematical analysis to determine whether a change in treatment, in this case, universal screening uh, versus different types of screening, um, and determine if that's cost effective using some benchmarks that, that the literature has kind of proven to be cost-effective. Great. And and tell us, what were the main findings of your Markov analysis? Sure. So what we found that was that uh, universal screening did appear to be more the most cost-effective uh, method of screening. And we looked at uh, Denver criteria, extended Denver criteria, Memphis criteria, and no screening at all. And, and although we know that pretty much no one in the United States does univer- uh, no screening, um, we still uh, included that in the model uh, as a baseline. And what we found was that universal screening, when you looked at the cost of missed uh, BCBI and the various different pathways along the decision uh, tree analysis, universal screening did appear to be the most cost-effective method of screening. Now, that came with a couple of caveats. So uh, one of them is how common BCBI is. So prior to, um, there's a great study 
of our co-authors, Jonathan Black out of UAP. Um, prior to his study, um, the incidence of BCBI was thought to be between one and 3%. Um, his study showed that actually with universal screening, the uh, incidence of BCBI is actually much higher. And he, he found it to be uh, as high as 7%. So we found that if the incidence of BCI falls between 2.6 and 6%, uh, universal screening is actually the, or excuse me, extended Denver criteria is actually the most, uh, most cost-effective uh, screening. Now, if your incidence of BCVI is over seven, uh, 6%, then uh, universal screening actually becomes the most uh, cost-effective method of screening. Now, the second caveat is that uh, looking at how effective antithrombotic therapy is, and we, used, we use antithrombotic therapy because that's probably the most common. You know, some, sometimes people use a heparin drip or full-on anticoagulation, but we looked at antithrombotic therapy. And so uh, using, um, if you look at the Eastern Practice Management, East, Eastern Association of Surgery of Trauma Practice Management Guidelines, uh, in 2020, they did a meta-analysis looking at the uh, effectiveness of antithrombotic therapy after BCBI. And what they found through the meta-analysis was that the odds ratio of stroke was about 0.2%. So that's the number we kind of used uh, for the model. However, when we did a sensitivity analysis, what we found was that if the ratio of antithrombotic therapy after BCBI uh, for stroke is 0.35 or less, then universal screening is the most cost-effective. If antithrombotic therapy is not as effective as we think it is, if the odds ratio of stroke is above 0.35, then expanded Denver criteria is the most cost-effective therapy. That makes a lot of sense to me. If the incidence of the disease that you're screening for is higher, then it makes more, more sense to screen for it more vigorously. And if it's lower, then it's less cost-effective to go looking for it if it's a more rare uh, entity. And similarly, if the treatment that you have available to treat it is less effective, then it's going to be less cost-effective to diagnose it in the first place if your treatment is not even going to work anyway, right? So yeah, right. that that, that right. seems to uh, that seems to to make sense to me from a, from a you know a very unsophisticated statistical understanding. It, it totally makes sense. Uh, I wanna back up for a second. You mentioned the expanded Denver criteria and you, you mentioned that in your model, you sort of looked at the whole spectrum of behaviors ranging all the way from no screening uh, to universal screening. Um, and the, the, uh, you mentioned also the Memphis criteria and the Denver criteria. And I assume, I'm assuming that these uh, fall somewhere within that spectrum. Uh, can you sort of give uh, the readers, if they're not familiar with these criteria, can you give us a rough um, description of the three different uh, screening criteria that you entered into your model? Sure. So, um, yeah, so we modeled with Denver criteria, extended Denver criteria, Memphis criteria, um, all three kind of named after the institutions that kind of uh, came up with the uh, screening strategies. Um, you know, there are a lot of nuanced uh, details uh, that make them different, but in, in generality, the, the Memphis criteria um, kind of focuses more on, uh, you know, cervical spine injury. So if there's a, any sort of cervical spine fracture, as well as facial fractures, such as the Fort 2 and the Fort 3, 
When you move to the Denver criteria, it's slightly more inclusive. It talks about having, uh, you know, if there's severe, uh, there's a lot of physical findings that go in, which is a cervical brewery, you know, altered mental status with cervical trauma. If uh, you have a, you know, I think all of them kind of talk about having a mental status that's not consistent with a CT findings and you want to get a CTA. The Denver criteria is a little more inclusive with facial fractures. For example, it adds on mandibular fractures and uh, even significant cervical soft tissue injuries. Um, and uh, extended Denver criteria is even more inclusive and uh, adds on some things such as uh, injury mechanisms like a, a near uh, hanging uh, clothesline type injuries. Um, it it kind of specifies, you know, closed head injuries with uh, diffuse axonal injury as well. So it, it with extended Denver criteria, as uh, again, as, over a couple of decades, as as um, you know, research became better and we, we and our community uh, kind of in, increased the data is available. Uh, the the screening criteria kind of uh, became more uh, inclusive and added more criteria to to screen patients. It kind of reminds me of the uh, paradigm shift in cervical spine fracture uh, screening where, you know, we were talking for a while about nexus and Canadian C-spine. And by the time you get to Canadian C-spine, you're basically doing universal screening anyway. So as we find right. more and more of these injuries um, with lower and lower mechanisms, it seems like we're expanding our criteria even more so that we're basically approaching universal screening. Yeah, and I, actually, I think that's a great point because I think as more and more places adopt universal screening, we're going to have a ton of data, and uh, you know, I think that it's going to get even more nuanced. I guess universal screening is pretty straightforward—just screen everybody. But I think that eventually, as we accumulate more data, we'll be able to get more nuance with our screening. So, I, I want to take this moment to to ask for some clarification about what you mean by by universal screening. Um, because sure. as trauma surgeons, we see the tip of the iceberg, um, at least at my institution, where there's a lot of low-level traumas that are evaluated by our emergency medicine colleagues and are worked up and then are never even brought to our attention. So, you know, in a typical trauma center, there's, well, how many do you see in the ED? How many are admitted? How many have a, you know, injury severity score over 15, et cetera? What do you mean in, in your study? How did you define universal screening? Was it anybody, let's say they got kicked in the stomach by a horse, would that person get universal screening? Or do they have to meet a certain um, activation level, like the highest level of, you know, for example, trauma team activation, or do they have to have a certain en energy me mechanism? Can you, can you clarify that for me? Sure, yeah, and, and that's a great question because you know it turns out there's really not an accepted definition of universal screening. And I bet if you poll different institutions and even actually, so we universal screening, if you poll the different uh, trauma surgeons that are taking call at our trauma center in New Orleans, I bet you you'll get a slightly different answer from each one of them. But um, you know, in general, if you look at prior uh, you know prior work, prior pu publications, there are places that are just doing activated patients. Um, so for us, what, what we're generally doing is patients that meet level one or level two activation at our trauma center will essentially get uh, a CTA. Uh, now, again, there is some exception uh, some to that. As you said, if there's an isolated injury, like a refrigerator fell on my knee um, and that patient's activated because they got a pulse's foot, but they didn't have any trauma, they don't have like a high speed mechanism, then that patient might not get a CTA. 
Um, you know, the place where I think uh, that has the, uh, the possibility where you could be missing is, as you said, the patients that are uh, seen by the emergency room staff, not activated, maybe a trauma consultation occurs, maybe not. Um, but I do think in general, if there is mechanism, then, then we will generally get a CTA. Is it um, safe to say that anybody who's getting a CT of the C-spine should probably get a CTA under the universal screening paradigm? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair assessment. I mean, that's that's kind of the strategy I use. If if, if there's enough trauma to the head and neck region where I want a CT head and CT and or CT C spine, then I think a CTA neck is warranted. Got it. Got it. Um, oh, so let me pose a question to you. So I recently had a patient who had both a grade one BCVI as well as a concomitant severe traumatic brain injury. Um, and so we spoke with our neurosurgical colleagues and they said, uh, no, no antithrombotic therapy, no anticoagulation for the first 72 hours. And it's my understanding that that's when the strokes are most likely to occur for these uh, BCBIs. They, they, the devastating ones will occur early. Do you have an estimate for what percentage of patients fall into this category where they have a known diagnosed BCBI, but a contraindication to early antithrombotic therapy? Yeah, so I don't think there's um, any, any studies to uh, kind of answer that specific question. What I do know is that most of the literature um, that reports starting antithrombotics, if you look at the average time till initiation of antithrombotics, it's roughly around 24 to 28 afterwards. So I think that a lot of these patients are, are actually having um, some sort of contraindication uh, to starting antithrombotics uh, early. Um, that being said, you know, it's a lot of what we deal with. You know, you're, you're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, the vast majority of these strokes do happen within 72 hours. So it is very important to weigh the risks and benefits of antithrombotics um, and to initiate treatment as uh, early as possible. Um, and, and actually, I think most of the studies, there's no randomized control trial, but most of the studies show that early um, antithrombotics uh, in TBI are, are relatively safe um, and uh, help uh, decrease the, the risk of stroke. So um, I think it's a, you know, an, it's just kind of have to use judgment and decide what is best for the patient. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, if, if I'm reading your methods correctly, though, your, your, mo your model assumed that all patients with a diagnosed BCVI were treated with antithrombotic therapy. And obviously the cost effectiveness of a screening method will decrease if one cannot act upon the results of those screening, right? So what good is it if I diagnose it, if I can't treat it? it do, do you have a sense of at what threshold of untreated BCVI is universal screening no longer cost effective? Like 50%, 80%? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, that's that's hard to say. I think if you um, like our sensitivity analysis, um, again, we're you know we're assuming some sort of benefit um, with antithrombotics. Uh, obviously, if there is no benefit because you can't treat, then your cost effectiveness will differ. Um, you know, may, maybe you know, we didn't look at the model that way, but maybe even maybe even something such as no no screening. Uh, becomes more cost effective, um, although I wouldn't advocate for that. So, yeah, no, I, think, I don't think, I think anybody a, would. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I just don't know that we have the the answer to it. Well, ho hopefully, uh, with with uh, with more screening and more data, we'll we'll know that answer uh, in in a couple of years. Let's shift for a second. So, uh, your incremental cost effectiveness ratio approach uses uh, a familiar uh, willingness to pay threshold of one hundred thousand dollars per quality. Uh, and quality stands for quality adjusted life years. So 100,000 is, is a figure that I've been seeing since the early days of my medical career, like 20 years ago. Uh, surely <laughs> with inflation, this value must have changed over time. Um, and so I was wondering, uh, what, what is $100,000 for quality? Like what, can you give me some context? Like are, what, what are some other examples of cost effectiveness for some other common screening modalities like, like colonoscopy or mammogram, or like we were saying earlier, the C-spine screening for trauma? Um, what, do, do you have a sense of what the, those qualities are and the willingness to pay? Sure. So um, yeah, so typically in the United States, uh, as you said, it's about 100,000. And I think that varies somewhat anywhere between 50 to 100,000. Um, and uh, it has not been adjusted for inflation um, for some time. And I think that's a valid point that uh, in today's day and age that we should consider uh, moving the needle on that. Um, now, uh, even like some other countries, when they do these types of analysis, they may not use that 100,000. Dollars, countries that don't spend as much on healthcare as we do. Um, so uh, I think that's a moving target depending on uh, what situation you're in. Um, now, to your point about other cost screening modalities. So um, I think one good example, it's a procedure that surgeons are familiar with, are colonoscopy. So um, there are studies out there that you know, compare 10-year colonoscopy to the annual fecal blood testing with annual uh, sigmoidoscopy. And if you look there, the, the ICER or the incremental cost effectiveness ratio anywhere from 30 to 70,000. Um, now, one important thing about our study is that we could only take the analysis out to a one-year horizon. And a lot of times these studies will go out to a five-year horizon. Um, and the reason why we, did, we could only do one year was because we, there's no data on BCVI past one year. It's just uh, not out there. Um, so it is, you know, it's, it's entirely possible when you look at a longer term projection for, uh, for BCBI, especially when the complication is as catastrophic as it can with a stroke, um, the, the ICER may actually be much lower than the next most effective uh, uh, screening strategies, which was extended number criteria. So, yeah, um, I, you know, I think we, we really need to um, take into account the stakes or the the severity of the complication when we're you know considering our willingness to pay and and for something as devastating as a stroke or a spinal cord injury for example in cervical spine injury i i think we should be a little bit more willingness we should be more willing to accept a lower cost effectiveness if the consequences of saving that money are, are going to be devastating you know for the patient yeah, I agree. And, and also um, other factors to consider is like age of the patient. So um, you have someone who is younger with a BCBI, obviously their, their uh, cost of becoming disabled from stroke will be much, much higher. So um, there are a lot of factors um, to consider uh, when choosing the most cost effective uh, strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of cost effectiveness, um, 
you know, the analysis, if I'm reading the methods, it includes your, your model included imaging, initial stroke events, and the monthly chronic cost of stroke. Um, you know, zooming out from the individual perspective, from a purely societal cost-effective approach, it seems like a quick death shortly after BCVI is very low cost, right? Uh, it doesn't generate additional, it, it's essentially, um, what is it, a uh, competing event, right? So, so how, does, how do cost-effectiveness models like yours treat death as an outcome? Do, do they assign them death like a dollar amount? Yeah, so great question. So, um, so you're absolutely right. A quick death does not result in a lot of cost. However, with your uh, incremental cost effectiveness ratio, one thing that it does uh, factor in into ratio is the quality adjusted life year added. So when, although you may not have a huge cost, you do not, you know, with a quick death, you also don't have much added quality life. Um, so that will affect your ratio. I see. Um, okay. And, and, I, and I will say in the United States, uh, usually death, death is not quick and cheap. It's usually uh, very, uh, you know, most, most, most money uh, is spent on healthcare at the end of life. So mm -hmm. uh, rarely happens that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, th thank you for clarifying. That was, that was a burning question I had about that. All right. So after reading your paper, this is what I thought of. This is, this is how I was thinking about using your paper moving forward. For my institution, I would like to begin universal screening for a period of about one or two years and identify our true prevalence of BCBI. You know, maybe it'll fall between that 1% to 7%, maybe it's higher, I don't know. But depending on what I find the prevalence of our institution to be, we will either continue universal screening or we'll scale back to one of those other criteria, Memphis, Denver, or expanded Denver, or maybe some other variation of Denver since I'm at Denver. <laughs> Do you agree with this approach? Yeah, I think that that's a totally reasonable approach. Um, you know, and, and you know, there, there are probably more than one ways to, to determine that. You know, for example, if you use extended Denver criteria, um, we know that that probably misses anywhere from 14 to 20% of BCBI. So you could probably extrapolate some numbers from that. But I, I definitely think uh, that what you are proposing is, is a great idea. I mean, that's kind of what we do in trauma, right? With, with performance improvement projects. And um, it's uh, looking at, uh, you know, our guideline or excuse me, our protocols and uh, reassessing them to determine if there's a compliance and if they're effective. Uh, and in this case, cost effective. Great, great. Well, thank Thank you for for uh, for backing me up on my on my proposal. What's next for you? Uh, wh where do you take it from here? Uh, what are your follow up studies planned? Well, I think um, you know pediatric BCVI screening is a moving target, so I think uh, that is uh, one thing uh, that would would be great to look at in terms of cost effectiveness. As we kind of talked about, um, you know, the stakes are a lot higher when patients are younger. Just in terms of implementation and coming up with a and what is exactly universal screening and how to implement it at different trauma centers um, is in kind of another important topic of study. Great, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that you uh, took the time to, to describe to us your, your important research findings and for, for answering all of the, the burning questions that I had about your, uh, about your study. 
I want to thank the listeners. Thank you for listening to The Operative Word. Please send us any feedback at postmaster at facs.org. Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACS Operative Word. Subscribe to The Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at facs.org slash podcast. 